Good morning, everybody. Hope I'm finding the middle of a fantastic day. And today we are continuing on in our survey through the scriptures. We are on 1 Kings. Last week we talked about 2 Samuel, with, which dealt predominantly with the life of King David. 1 Kings deals predominantly with the life of King Solomon and many others to follow. It gets a little soap opera-y there in the middle, but we'll cover that in a second. The author, as we're jumping right into it this morning, of the book of 1 Kings is probably Jeremiah. We don't really know for certain who the author is. That's our best educated guess. Most of these historical books, uh, the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, they're not really signed. Nobody really puts their name to it per se. Uh, it might be that it was just a royal book, a chronicle of the history of the nation of Israel. It very likely that many people had a hand in participating in this writings, these writings. So it's probably the prophet Jeremiah, uh, because a lot of this is reflection, looking back on historical events. Uh, it is written in a present tense narrative, but... It's all uh, written, seemingly, has the same sort of, um, what's the word, style. Has the same sort of signature in each section. So, we're assuming it's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he's known, who also wrote the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations, also known as the Lamentations of, you guessed it, Jeremiah. And so he dealt with a very difficult time during his prophecy years. And he also took to penning this book. Uh, again, probably as well. The date of the book of 1 Kings is approximately 586 BC, uh, but it covers about 120 years during the reign of Solomon. As I said, covers Solomon's life and sort of beyond. Uh, the theme for this book is disobedience brings division. And if you're following along with our Sunday school classes, boy, oh boy, is this true. Disobedience brings division. And that is quite true. I can tell you even from the certain standpoint of churches, when anybody, whether it be leadership and pastors or whether it be laymen and uh, church members that uh, maybe aren't as active as other church members, disobedience brings division. Uh, I tried to run VBS for many years and I can tell you division came from those programs in the children's ministry, in the youth departments, in the adult ministries when somebody didn't have a right attitude. When somebody was uh, being a little self-centered, somebody was being a little mean to somebody else, and that sort of disobedience to the Word of God does bring division. We ought to strive to do God's work first and make it convenient for ourselves second. But unfortunately, not everybody thinks that way. And that disobedience does bring division. That's what Solomon saw in his lifetime. That's what many of the other kings after Solomon did see in their time. So that brings us to the outline of the book of 1 Kings. If I can get over to it. There it is. So we see in chapter 1, 
uh, through chapter 2 is the death of David and the transfer of the kingdom to Solomon. And so we see the sickness of David uh, there in chapter 1, and his time on this earth is drawing near to the end. And honestly, it's really quite sad. Mostly because, especially if you've read 2 Samuel before starting 1, Samuel, or 1 Kings, it's quite sad because you've really come to know David personally. You were there when he, with his struggles and his difficulties. You knew him as a little boy, a little shepherd boy that Solomon found and anointed. You were there when he fought Goliath. And the king proclaimed and, and rejoiced and brought him into his own home and gave him his daughter and all of these wonderful things happening for David. And then we were there when King Saul decided that David was his enemy, tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, and he avoided that. And he just kept accepting whatever life threw at him until finally King Saul was killed in the battle. Then David took the throne, and we saw the struggles he dealt with through his entire life and how he dealt with them. We saw his, his trip-ups, like with Bathsheba and her husband. You know, like with uh, his son, um, whose name is escaping me at the moment. We spent several weeks teaching on him. That's not good. Uh, Absalom. There it is. His son Absalom, uh, who set a rebellion against God's anointed king, who, which wouldn't have stood. He didn't raid, dare to raise a sword against Saul because that was God's anointed king. And yet we see him, the, the anointed king, laying down for this rebellious son of his. And so we see his ups and his downs and his struggles. We can so relate to this character of David. So that makes this first chapter really quite sad. David's sick and Solomon's trying to figure out what to do and in the midst of all of this chaos we see a plot by Adonijah, uh, Absalom's brother actually, uh, and certain promises by other people of the kingdom to go to Solomon. They actually go to David and they ask David who should inherit the throne and David says that it should be Solomon, that the Lord told him that many, many years ago. And so that is David's wish, that's God's wish, which is most important. But you see these people, right, in the background, and they're plotting, they're scheming. They're trying to figure out how to get Solomon out of their way and make sure the throne is theirs. And one of which actually is quite sad. It was one of David's most faithful servants and warriors, a man named Joab. If you know much about the life of David, especially his kingly years, you know about Joab. Joab was one of his most loyal servants and one of his closest friends. And Joab here turns against David in his twilight years, on his deathbed. Joab decides that he should have sided with the other team all those years ago in the first rebellion. It was quite a tragic story. So we see the plot of Adonijah, and he's scheming, and he's getting people on his side. Then we see the promise of King Solomon to, or the kingdom to go to Solomon by King David and the Lord. Uh, which brings us to the latter part of chapter 1. Uh, Solomon is indeed coronated as king. And then in chapter 2, we see David's last words to Solomon before he passes on.
But then we see in chapter 2, and the remainder of it, is Solomon sort of securing his kingdom. All of these traitors, all of these people that decided to try to take the throne before God's will had been made known, before David's will had been made known. Excuse me. And they put an end to all of these people that might later stab Solomon in the back. And not just these people, but all the other people that David kept alive during his time that continuously stabbed David in the back. Solomon many times tried to show mercy, but they would take advantage of his goodwill. And unlike his father, he was not going to be betrayed a second time. So he put an end to these men. And he secures his own kingdom. Which brings us to the second part of 1 Kings is Solomon's activities. And basically that's just the things he did during his time as king. The first of which was the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter in chapter 3. And many people believe uh, Pharaoh's daughter, his first wife, was who uh, the book of the Song of Solomon was penned in inspiration to. I don't think it was a literal story about their literal life. There's a lot of allegory in there, and some of it doesn't track, uh, fit together perfectly. So I do think it was Solomon penning this uh, about many things. But it might have been in inspiration and dedication to Pharaoh's daughter, his first love. Uh, We see his prayer for wisdom, which is a very special passage of scripture. That's where he comes in and says, Lord, I don't know anything. Please give me wisdom. And God says, okay, I'll give you wisdom you ain't never heard of before. And then I'll give you all the wealth and power that you didn't ask for also. Uh, Which leads us to Solomon's court, his wealth, and his wisdom being on display in chapter 4. He creates a pact with Hiram of Tyre in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he begins the building of the temple. And the building of the king's house as well. Up to this point, the king didn't have a palace and God didn't have a house either. But he builds uh, the temple first and he puts his priorities there. Then once the temple is done, he can build a house for himself, which is the proper order. We see uh, the dedication of the temple in chapter 8 and the renewal of the Davidic covenant in chapter 9. And then we see also in chapter 9 through chapter 10 is Solomon's fame and wisdom and prosperity uh, further enhanced and on display for us yet again. Uh, Then chapter 11, the tide begins to turn for old King Solomon. Uh, Solomon's many wives begin to turn his heart in chapter 11 to idolatry, which invokes the wrath of God. And he loses God's blessing upon his time as king. But for many years, Solomon continues in his idolatry. And toward the end and the realization of what he did is when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He's looking back on his life and all the wasted years in idolatry. And he says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, all is vexation of spirit, all is pointless and hopeless and emptiness. Nothing holds any value for me anymore. Nothing matters anymore. But it gets to the end of the book, and the last few verses, he says, the only things that I ever did that really mattered was to love God and keep his commandments. To do God's work. The things that I did for God, those were the only things I ever did that actually meant anything. And be careful about that thing of getting in that hamster wheel, you know, getting in that rat race. 
you know, working the job to have the energy to make the money, to buy the food, to have the energy to go to work. It's a vicious cycle, and if you're not careful, you find yourself in it one day, life will lose all meaning. Be sure you let the Lord give your life some purpose. Don't get caught in the same trap that, it, that Solomon did, which leads him to uh, the latter part, or the middle part of chapter 11, where Solomon's enemies are aroused by the Lord. And then the latter part of chapter 11 is the rise of Jeroboam and the death of Solomon. And he tells Solomon toward the latter end of his life that your servant, Jeroboam, uh, will take your throne. And because of my promise to David, your seed will continue to reign also, but they'll have two tribes and he'll have ten. And this is where we see the civil war of Israel begins. They're split basically into two countries. You have Israel, which is the ten northern tribes, and the two southern tribes, which are Judah and Benjamin, they're kept by the throne of the line of David. The names start to get a little hairy there, uh, which, if, again, if you're in our Sunday school class, you know what I mean there. They're, they're difficult to track. They're so close together. Jeroboam was reigning at the same time as Rehoboam, which brings us to our third point, the kingdom split. It begins in chapter 12. And we see Rehoboam is made king in chapter 12. Uh, this is not Jeroboam, this is Rehoboam. And you're starting to understand what I meant by a little confusing. We then see the revolt. Uh, and we begin to see that Jeroboam is made king of the north. And God's word is being fulfilled here. But then we see that Jeroboam gets a little nervous. He says, Oy, oh, what if these people want to start worshiping God again? They're going to have to go into Rehoboam's kingdom to do it. That's where everything is. And they need something here that they can worship. So Jeroboam plunges Israel into idolatry. And he creates the golden calves. Make a vicious return from Exodus here in 1 Kings. Jeroboam resurrects the golden calf and says, These be the gods that brought thee out of the land of Egypt just like Aaron did. We see Aaron's sin affecting Israel all the way here, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years later. And we see that, that vicious, deadly golden calf rearing its ugly head again, and it, Israel plunges itself into idolatry. Which then brings us to the fourth part of the book, the reigns of uh, Israelite and Judean kings. And this is where things start to uh, move a little fast. In chapter 13, we see uh, Jeroboam of Israel. And then we see Rehoboam of Judah. And it sort of talks about them and, as kings and their personalities. In chapter 14, we see... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 13 is Jeroboam. Chapter 14 is Rehoboam. Chapter 15 is Abijam, king of Judah. Uh, chapter... Uh, that's the first eight verses of 15. Verses 9 through 24, verse chapter 15, is Asa, king of Judah. And then you have Nadab of Israel, and then Baasha of Israel. And all these names will be familiar to you, again, if you've uh, been following along in our Sunday School series. And then you have Elah uh, Zimri of Israel in chapter 16. And then you have Omri of Israel in chapter 16. And then that brings you to Ahab. Uh, in chapter 16, verses 28 through 34. 
And then you see a real big shift in the book, because up to this point, it's been the narrative of the kings, right? And their lives and the good things that they've done and the bad things that they've done. But now we see an incredible shift, right? Things change pretty drastically because we go from it being about the nation and the royal family and the kings, the changes in power, to being about one man, a very specific man, a prophet of God named Elijah. And we see in Elijah's life in chapter 17, uh, prophesies against Ahab. Ahab takes occasion against it, and God tells him to hide out by the brook Cherith. The book dries out because of the drought that God sent to Israel as punishment for their idolatry. And God sends him to the widow woman and the miracle of the uh, the barrel of oil, uh, the barrel of cruise uh, the, the cruise and the oil never fail. And she has flour to make bread until the drought's over and there's food once again. And so that's chapter 17. Um, chapter 18 begins the story of the prophets of Baal being challenged and uh, killed there in chapter 18. Uh, we see in chapter 19 that Elijah flees to Mount Horeb and meets God there at Mount Horeb. And uh, then we also see Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha is called to prophetic ministry. And that was sort of Elijah's uh, protege, right? This was uh, the student to the master who was Elijah. And so Elisha's learning from Elijah. As a matter of fact, Elisha was there for one of the most important moments in the story of Elijah in his life. And then it sort of shifts back to Ahab's reign uh, in chapter 20. And we see war between Ahab and Ben-Hadad of Syria uh, in chapter 20. And then in chapter 21, we see Ahab in the vineyard of Naboth. And this is quite an interesting story. If you've never read it, Ahab decides he wants a vineyard. And uh, his wife Jezebel uh, figures out a way to get it for him in quite a horrific way. Uh, and then we see in chapter 22, the death of Ahab uh, in battle against Syria. Which brings us to the final portion of the book, which is further kings. Uh, Jehoshaphat of Judah in chapter 22, verses 41 through 50. And Ahaziah of Israel, chapter 22 again, but verses 51 through 53. Evidently, that's quite a long chapter. And so that is sort of the outline of the book of first kings and we'll get into second kings next week and uh it really begins to trail there listing off the different kings and so forth but it's also second kings deals with the tragic end of the nation of israel and in scripture when israel as a nation ceases to exist historically it will not become a nation again until 1940 and that's A.D., that's current, that's 1940, like a little under 100 years ago. Which 100 years is a long time, but, I mean, in comparison to the history of the world, it's not that long ago. So it is quite the big deal, what we're ramping up to here. 
the key word for the book of first Kings is royalty because we deal so much with royalty. We deal so much with the line of David and the people who have taken the throne of Israel, one tearing down another, being torn down himself and so forth and so on. Uh, the key verse, which I will pull up for you real quick, is going to be first uh, Kings, obviously chapter two. It's going to be 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 12, which reads, Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. Because most of 1 Kings deals with Solomon and his throne being established, but then also with his throne uh, sort of being upended by Jeroboam. A few special features we find in this particular book is the divided kingdom. And we've talked about this a little bit already, but the divided kingdom was extremely important in Israel's history. It wasn't the first time Israel had been divided in this exact way. Uh, we remember in the very beginning of David's reign as king, the kingdom was divided with Judah and Benjamin, and then the rest of the ten tribes of Israel were run by uh successor to the throne of Saul. And for many, many years, this is how David's kingdom was run until the man was killed and David taking justice for this death because that's not how he wanted to take the, the kingdom back did in fact take a united kingdom. So it's been united through the line of David, through the line of Solomon, and it's toward the end of Solomon's life and because of Solomon's idolatry that we see the kingdom is divided. Now, I'm going to say this. The kingdom was divided because of David. And you might say, but Pastor Matthew, how could that be? You just told us that David had the kingdom united in his time. Well, I did, and I'm not talking about that civil war there at the very beginning either. No, no, I'm talking about a tradition that David started that led to each member that sat upon the throne after him continuing this tradition, which would lead to the idolatry and led to the destruction of Israel. And I'm talking about the tradition of having multiple wives. Now we know Saul had a wife and we know he had at least a concubine, which is sin and it is wrong. But we know Saul did many things that were wrong, so we're not exactly shocked that he had a concubine. We are, however, shocked to find out that David had concubines and many wives. That he was married when he first took the throne, and before he took the throne, he had his wife and he had his children. And yet, when he takes the throne, he forces Saul's daughter, Michael, who had been promised to him, he forces her to leave her husband and locks her up in the palace so that she is forced to be in a relationship with David against her will. And this is the evil that begins the destruction of Israel. Because what David did in moderation, Solomon did in excess. David took extra wives for himself and even a couple as a political maneuver. Marriage is not a political maneuver. And I don't care how royal you are, to marry for power like they do in so many royal families is a sin and an abuse against something so sacred and holy 
that is meant to be about love like God originally established it. And David abuses this, and David knew better. He studied the scriptures. He knew about the first marriage. He knew what it was supposed to be about. He created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Beth and Sue and Peggy and all these other women. Adam and Eve. That's the way God intended it. But he takes all these extra wives, and Solomon takes hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, and it is those wives and those concubines that he should not have been collecting in the first place, as though they were so many trophies to sit upon a shelf. And yet it was considered to be a tr tremendous honor to be one of Solomon's whores. Pardon my language there, but that is exactly what they were. It was considered such an honor. You were considered a, a really sexy woman, a really beautiful person. If you were one of Solomon's many wives, you'd line up and he decided which one to sleep with that night. And you'd say, how disgusting and barbaric. And it wasn't that long ago that that's exactly what our society did with the Playboy Mansion before Hugh Hefner passed away. You were considered to be beautiful and sexy if you were a playboy bunny. And it's just as disgusting today as it was then. We're not so far evolved as a society beyond these baser things. We are not, we've not outgrown these sins. And Solomon hadn't outgrown the sins of his father. And it is those wives that turned his heart from worshiping the one true Jehovah Elohim God of Israel to worshiping all these false gods. And because of this, because of the multiple wives, a tradition that David established, his heart is turned to idolatry, which follows in line and God punishes Solomon's idolatry which he got from his wives, which he got from David, by splitting up the kingdom. The kingdom is divided because of a tradition that David started, which led to his son's idolatry. His own tradition of having many wives led to his son turning against the God he loved his whole life and never turned his heart from, even though he messed up a few times. You never can imagine how your sin will affect somebody else 10, 20, 30 years down the road. You just can't know. So it's better to do right now than to deal with the consequences or have your children or grandchildren deal with the consequences later on down the road. The divided kingdom is a direct result of David and his lust. We've talked about Jeroboam establishing the northern kingdom and establishing a new capital as well. And then we see the southern kingdom, which was Judah and Benjamin. And uh, we see the king was Rehoboam. And the capital there was Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom. Right? And that's why he was worried about people going to Jerusalem to worship. And so that is sort of the... Uh, Excuse me, that is the special feature of this book is the divided kingdom. And that is the sort of beginning of the divided kingdom. And we always end this thing with Christ in the book, right? Because we look for Christ throughout each book because he's there to be seen. And he's here in the form of Solomon the king in his early years, of course. In his wisdom, 
And uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus talks about Solomon during his time uh, and his ministry. And he says uh, about the flowers that grow in the grass and the beautiful flowers that bloom in the springtime. And he says, if God so clothed the grass of the field, right, and how those flowers are beautiful things to adorn the earth, and he says, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. That the flowers of springtime are arrayed in more beauty than any of us could ever attain to. And there's some poetry to that, isn't there? But also, he says, how much more shall your heavenly father clothe you, O ye of little faith? So he's using Solomon as an example there in his glory and his wealth and his power to say that there's more glory and there's more wealth and there's more power in worshiping God than there is in anything else. Sometimes it's not always easy to see. But we see Solomon the king in his wisdom and his prosperity and his gold. And that's a picture of Christ as king sitting upon his throne, ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom. We also see that Elijah is a type of Christ in many ways uh, in his prophetic works. And uh, he's, he's a type of Christ. And as a matter of fact, uh, the, John the Baptist is referred to many times as Elias. And Elias is the transliteration from Hebrew to Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. And it's transliteration basically from the Old Testament to the New Testament of that name. So basically, Elias is Elijah. And uh, many times in Scripture, we see Jesus is mistaken for Elijah, like a resurrected Elijah. And we see John the Baptist is referred to as the Elijah that is supposed to return and so forth. And that is because of this in his lifetime and his obedience and his journey, his prophetic works and ministry. I mean, look at the, the moments there, at the, the Baal worshipers that we're going to talk about this Sunday and uh, or next Sunday rather. And uh, it'll be a, a great time. But these are the Christs in the book and that is the book of First Kings. I want to thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next week.